will please turn back with me to the book of Genesis and reading in Genesis chapter 33 this evening. Genesis chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given to your servant. Then the servants drew near and their children and bowed down. Leah, likewise, and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing uh, that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at a pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at a pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padam Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Eloi Israel. In our evenings together, uh, we have been looking at the life of Jacob, and we have been looking at the life of Jacob, uh, we've been highlighting for several reasons. Jacob is important, he's a patriarch, but Jacob is also important because he's teaching us 
about how God intervenes in a person's life. How God intervened to cause one schemer, one deceiver, one scoundrel uh, to become a saint. And how it is that this man who had been living deceitfully came to ultimately to confess that God is his God and to live a life of faith. And so it's teaching us something about the dynamics of grace. But as with many uh, stories in the Old Testament, we are looking at Jacob because in Jacob, we are, seeing, we are seeing really what the gospel is. We're seeing really what Jesus is before Jesus comes. And we see that in the life of Jacob, in all the brokenness of his life. We're seeing how God works through brokenness and is advancing his purposes, even through Jacob's relationships. Jacob had a broken family. You remember that Jacob had deceived his father. He had pretended to be his brother Esau in order to receive the blessing of Abraham in the place of Esau. That action caused a rift in the family. Uh, his brother was so angry that he wanted to kill Jacob. Jacob had to flee from the land. He had to go hundreds of miles away. And he lived there for the next 20 years. His actions had long-standing consequences, both for him personally and for others. And this evening we're really looking at how his past comes to the fore once again, where the one that he ran from he now has to face as he's entering the promised land. That as Jacob is to enter into the land of promise, he is to face uh, his own sins. And Jacob is uh, worth looking at because when we look at Jacob, we can resonate with the life of Jacob. Jacob's story is one of fragmentation. It is a story of brokenness. We see so much division in the family of Jacob. And yet, strangely, the story of Jacob is not alien to our ears. Because for many of us, we have either said the words or we have heard the words being said. I haven't spoken to that person since they said that to me. I haven't spoken to that person since they did that to me. And we can look at our own lives and see where relationships have been broken apart. Where things have been said or things that have been done. And never being reconciled. Those relationships are now in a, a state of ongoing separation. It could be because of pride. But it could also be because of a breakdown of trust. It could be because of resentment. But it could also be simply a confusion as to how to set things right. It could be that there is no movement towards one another. Or it could simply be the silence. Where things aren't what they once were. But we can look at our own lives and we can see the, the pain that comes when people are separated. That was Jacob's story. His past had a long-standing consequence. Twenty years he has been separated from Esau. 
And now as he is coming back to the land of his kindred, he is coming back to the land of his fathers. He is coming to face Esau. And this evening we want to see how pleasant it is when there is restoration. And because God is a God who is reconciling sinners, we should pursue and cherish restoration with others. We want to think about this chapter in two thoughts. We want to think about the restoration of these brothers. And then we want to think about the response or the recognition that comes from this event. First, there is uh, the, recon- uh, the restoration uh, event. As mentioned, Jacob had stolen that blessing from his brother Esau. And as a result, there had been that separation. But now, uh, as we turn to our passage, it is important to see that this whole event is really being directed by the Lord's will. It isn't simply that Jacob is leaving the land of Padamaram uh, because things were getting tense there with Laban and Laban's sons. That's true. But you remember that the Lord directly told Jacob it was time to go. It was time now to return. And so it's important that as we think about what is happening, it's not just that Jacob is being squeezed out of one location and then being really cut off by a boundary line not to return. But Jacob is being ultimately directed to this encounter as he goes back to the land of Canaan. The Lord is causing Jacob to face Esau because it is the Lord's initiative uh, that is behind that. Uh, it is important uh, to realize. But as he is making his way to Canaan, he sends messengers ahead to tell Esau that he is coming and that he desires to find favor in the sight of Esau. You remember that Esau responds. Uh, The messengers come back saying, Esau is coming, but he's coming with 400 men. Uh, That is something that Jacob interprets as a sign of aggression. Uh, This is a a hostile act that he is surmising. And so Jacob is filled with fear. And in his fear, he prays to God, asking God to deliver him from the wrath of Esau. And you remember that he prayed, asking God on the basis of his promises. You promised me that you would do me good. You told me to come back. Please deliver me from the hand of Esau. But before he meets with Esau, he has that night encounter uh, where he is uh, wrestling with uh, a visitor uh, who ultimately blesses him. But now, uh, it tells us at the beginning of chapter 33, Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. Jacob divides his groups again. Uh, You notice that he uh, puts his servants, uh, the two female servants up front, and he puts his beloved wife and his beloved son, Joseph, at the back. Uh, Jacob is still, fear is still present in Jacob. Uh, You can see it in the the actions of Jacob in this chapter. Uh, He is still facing something that is intimidating. But as he goes out to meet his brother, it tells us, Uh, that he uh, uh, bows uh, seven times uh, before his brother. Um, But it tells us in verse 4 that when his brother comes, Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. 
Jacob's fears ultimately were unfounded. That what Jacob feared in his brother did not come to pass. At some point, there was a change in the attitude of Esau towards Jacob. At one time, he did want to kill him. But now, he doesn't. It doesn't say when that happened, whether it was a long time ago or whether it was even something recent. But there has been a change in Esau. And that change, ultimately, is due to God's restraining grace. That Esau no longer harbors resentment for the things that happened in the past. Instead, he comes out and gives Jacob a favorable reception. Because the Lord had changed uh, his attitude towards Jacob. And so that is something that Jacob will never forget. He is completely at the mercy of Esau as he comes out to what he sees as a small army uh, that might attack him and his family. But when Esau saw all the women and the children, he asks, who are these? And Jacob explained that it is the children whom the Lord has graciously given to him. When Esau asks, what is the purpose of these companies that he has just met? Jacob explains that it was in order to find favor with his brother. Um, that Jacob was doing this because he wanted to set things right. And you'll find that commentators interpret Jacob's actions in different ways. Uh, whether it was something troubling that Jacob was doing this or something unnecessary. But it seems that Jacob is recognizing his past and trying to show in a concrete way his, his sense of ownership about his actions. And so when Esau says to him, I have enough, I don't need that. You notice that Jacob doesn't relent. And he doesn't relent simply because of a Middle Eastern custom or pleasantries of just being overly polite. Jacob insists that he takes this offering, this present, which can be translated as my offering, because he says, I have seen your face. And seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. That there was a time in Jacob's life what mattered most to him was prosperity. But Jacob's offering here to Esau is a concrete expression to Esau that that's not the case now. That he values the relationship with Esau more than these 550 animals. And so Jacob can't undo the past. He can't undo the, the, the strain that has come upon the family. But what Jacob can do is he can own the consequences of his actions, that he can acknowledge the pain that he has caused. And Jacob here is communicating that to Esau. We don't necessarily have to conclude that Jacob is doing something unnecessary by this action. Rather, it is a principle of scripture, isn't it? That repentance goes beyond simply words. But that where it is possible, restitution is a, an important part. And here, Jacob is showing in a concrete way, genuine repentance to Esau. 
It is a principle that Jesus himself teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. But as one commentator points out, true repentance challenges our pride as it calls us to humble ourselves, to admit our sin, and to deal with the consequences. That's why repentance is so hard. Because it's not just saying words. It's facing the consequences of our actions. That that restoration is a rare thing because it, it really deals with the pride of not wanting to humble ourselves before God. This is why reconciliation is so rare. It challenges our pride and requires us to be concerned about more than our own self-interests. And so as we think about what is happening here, there is a, a tense encounter where Jacob recognizes the one who is angry with him has every right to be angry with him. And yet Esau is willing to accept him, recognizing that they are brothers. But the scriptures teach us not only that our relationships with one another can be broken, not only can there be separation and disruption between our human-to-human relationships, but those separations are really a reflection of a much bigger problem, which is the separation between us and our God. That there is a separation that has been brought about because of sin. And that that is something that needs to be rectified as well. The scriptures teach us uh, that sin has separated us from God and that our sins now not only bring uh, a just condemnation from God, but our sinful nature leaves us harboring suspicion about God as well. But the gospel, the good news is is that God is a God who restores. That's why it's so important to realize that the Lord is the one who is moving this encounter of Jacob with Esau. The Lord is causing Jacob to meet Esau as he comes to the promised land. He must recognize his sins as he is to receive of God's blessings. And so it is in our lives that we must recognize that we are sinners in need of God's grace if we are to know the healing that God himself brings. God not only heals broken relationships, God is the God who accomplishes that restoration. And so we see in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament describe God's work as a work of restoration. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That God restores the relationship with sinners in Jesus. Paul says in another place that if we believe on the Lord Jesus, we have received reconciliation. That relationship has been healed. God is no longer angry with the sinner. And the sinner no longer harbors a suspicion about the God who is. Because in Jesus Christ, they see the character of God. And in Jesus Christ, they see the judgment of God laid upon him. Now there is peace. And so restoration comes through Jesus Christ. We no longer live with that alienation or that separation on account of sin. 
So as hard as it would have been for Jacob to face his brother after all he had done, he was to trust that the Lord would deliver him. Remember, that's what he prayed. You told me to come back. Now Esau is coming with 400 men. Please deliver me. But in a similar way, we are to face our own sins. We are to face the sins of our past. We are to face the guilt that we carry by turning to the Lord, the very one before whom we have offended. But we are to do so on the basis of God's word. You have said that if we humble ourselves, you will forgive. You have said that you are a God who will heal us and give us a new heart. You are a God who has said that you will make us clean. And so as hard as it would be for Jacob to face Esau, he was to do it in faith. Likewise, we are to be people who turn to our God with our sin, believing in the promises of God. God is a God who restores sinners. If you are sitting here this evening as someone who is not a Christian, I want you to ask yourself a question. Why do we, as a culture, place such value on restoration? Why do we, as individuals, place such importance on reconciliation? Why do we watch movies about it? Why do we read stories about relationships that sever but then are healed? Why don't we think of it as simply natural and neutral for relationships to go sour and then to throw them out? Why do we think that it's better the costliness of investing and of healing that relationship is worth it? Why do we think that? Is it not because we recognize that we were not meant to live alienated, but that we were created for fellowship? That we weren't supposed to be estranged from one another? That sin is not something normal or neutral. Sin is something awful. And so whenever we do see restoration, we look at that and we say, that's beautiful. That's the way it should be. And then ask yourself, what undergirds that conviction? What makes you think that restoration is possible? And what you will find is it is the work of God. What overcomes sin? What is big enough? To bring together those who have been warring, to those who have been hurt, to those to whom sin has separated. But God's overarching purpose. God is a God who is restoring this world, a God who is able to overcome sin. It is in Christianity that we see both a basis for valuing reconciliation, but also to believe that it is something that is attainable. God initiates it, but God also accomplishes it. And so we see something 
in a, in, a, in a limited way here in the Old Covenant, we're seeing two brothers who are at odds with one another now weeping together. It's a beautiful thing. It's a limited thing, but it's still a beautiful thing. The restoration that comes to pass. So there's the event of meeting with his past, meeting with his brother Esau before he comes to the land of Canaan. But then there's also the recognition that comes afterwards. In verses 12 and following, we see the conversation play itself out between Esau and Jacob. Esau offers uh, uh, for them to journey together. Jacob politely declines. He says that he cannot keep pace. He has nursing flocks and the children are a care to him. Esau then provides uh, the recommendation that some of his men can escort him and protect him. Jacob again politely declines, saying there's no need of it. But in all of this, we're seeing that these brothers, uh, the, the hostility is removed, even if Jacob's fear is not completely removed. Uh, we see uh, them uh, talking with one another. Some allege that Jacob may have intended to ultimately make a journey to Seir at a future date. Uh, but it seems perhaps simplest to see that Jacob here is uh, reverting to his old characteristics of holding back or of scheming uh, as to his old character. Uh, after all, he could have plainly stated that he was under oath to go to Bethel, uh, and he could have been honest with his brother about not going to Seir. But in either case, uh, there is a, a peaceful separation, and it tells us that he comes to Shechem, which was within the land of Canaan, and there he pitched his tent. But notice in verse 20, it tells us that there he erected an altar, and he called it El Eloi Israel. Jacob has come uh, to a point in his life where he is willing to publicly testify something about his God. He sets up an altar uh, and testifies to the God who has made himself known, the God who appeared to him at Bethel, the God who again appeared to him at Peniel, was indeed his God. He was his strong deliverer. He was not simply the God of Abraham. He was not simply the God of Isaac. He was the God of Israel. Jacob came to a place where he could say that publicly. He could bear witness to that to others. He could bear witness to that to himself. Jacob was not going to live without making clear where his allegiance lied. And so this is an, uh, an important development in Jacob's life, this public testimony. There's no ambiguity as to where his trust lies. He is making this stand that God is his God. It is evident that there has been a great change in Jacob, a significant way uh, even from the way that he last met with Esau. Instead of taking, he is here marked by giving. But he's also shown himself to being very different than Esau in another way. In the way that he is willing to express and to talk about God. You notice that in three different ways in this conversation with his brother, he appeals to God. Who are these children? They are the children whom God has graciously given to me. Take of this offering, for seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. 
What was Jacob saying when he said those words? He was alluding to the previous night, wasn't he? When he had that night visitor who knew who he was, saying, tell me your name, and then saying, your name is Jacob, but no more. You are one who is striven with men. He knew who Jacob was, and yet he blessed him. He received a favorable reception from that night visitor who was able to dislocate his hip with a single strike. Jacob came away from that encounter saying, I stood in the presence of God and I was blessed rather than condemned. And now when he saw Esau's favor upon him, he saw it as a confirmation. Just as God gave favor towards me, I see God's favor even in the face of Esau, that I can stand in your presence and be accepted. But did you notice how he said it to Esau? Seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. Jacob speaks to Esau, his brother, about God. But you notice that in the whole encounter, Esau never once mentions God. It's like when you have a conversation with someone and you're talking about something that is interesting and important to you and then you you pitch something at them to get their feedback. What do you think about the topic? And silence. They have nothing to say. They don't want to weigh in. They have nothing to contribute. Esau has nothing to say here about God. The only thing Esau says is, I have enough. I have what I want in life. I have enough. And really, at the end of the day, we're going to come away asking whether we're more like Esau or whether we're more like Jacob. Are we living in such a way that we are simply finding our contentment in the things that we have? I have what I want. Or can we come to a place where we have this ability to testify what we know about God and that we are committed to him. Jacob has expressed his faith. It is a public faith. It is something that he commits himself and he's not afraid to allege, to, to make that allegiance before others. But have you come to profess your faith in this God? Have you come to be able to testify to others who and what it is that you believe? This is an important point in Jacob's life. An altar to the God who had made a promise that I will bring you back. I will be your God. I will deliver you. And Jacob here is celebrating. God has been faithful. And I belong to him. In the same way, we come to the New Testament, and that's how we see the believers talking. They give expression to their faith. The Apostle Paul would say, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Who did Paul believe in? Paul believed in the God of Abraham. He believed in the God who has brought to life uh, uh, immortality by conquering death through Jesus Christ. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, and he testified publicly to his faith. He had come to understand that God is a God who 
restores sinners, that he heals those who have wandered from him. And he does that in Jesus Christ. That he saw in Jesus the working of God. And it's interesting, Jesus himself tells a parable in the New Testament. And as you hear that parable, you hear the story of one of the most formative events in Jacob's life. Jacob had been estranged from his brother. But after 20 years, expecting the wrath of his brother, he was met by a brother running to him. And that brother wept over him. That Esau welcomed him. Jacob would never forget that. This is how brothers should be. Jesus then takes that story and transports it and tells the parable of the prodigal son to explain what God is like. That God is a God who welcomes sinners. That God is a God who restores sinners unto himself. That although they have done much harm, that God is able to heal those who call on his name. That those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And so it is with all those who believe. They will be able to testify, this is my God. This is my Savior. Isn't that what Thomas did when he saw the resurrection? My Lord and my God. Restoration is not only beautiful when it happens. It is real by God's grace. We celebrate when relationships are healed. But it points beyond itself to the gospel of Jesus. The reason why we look at these stories in the Old Testament is because they picture Jesus to us. We see beyond Jacob and Esau coming together, we actually see the working of God who overcomes the rift of sin. That before one enters into the promised land, before one enters and enjoys the blessings of God, there must be a work of God that heals what has been broken. And ultimately that points us to the Lord Jesus. And as a result, when we discover that, it leads to an expression of faith. God, the God of Israel. Is this your God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about this event in Jacob's life, we pray, Lord, that we would see how you are a God who is working through our brokenness, a God who is able to heal what we cannot, a God who is able to restore what is broken. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ, there is one who overcomes the barrier of sin, one who removes the wall of separation, 
And we pray, Lord, that in him we would find our hope and our confidence. Go before us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.